Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, it's time for Congressman Mark Pocan with us, taking your calls for the hour. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the big cheese progressive in the U.S. House of Representatives. He also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House. His website, Pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And he's here for the hour for our national town hall meeting. Congressman Pocan, welcome back. It's great having you. What's going on in... Uh, Well, I know you're not in Washington, D.C., but what's going on with regard to Congress and, uh, you know, what do we need to know about? What are your thoughts on this day before we pick up our calls? Sure. You know, we're continuing to work on what will be in a a CARES 2 package, uh, the fourth coronavirus package. Still uh, assuming we're looking at the end of April uh, or hoping to. We know that the Senate Republicans are still trying to just include additional dollars for the Paycheck Protection Program that we would like to also do some hospital local government money. So there's still some ongoing discussions on that. But, you know, honestly, I I made the mistake the last several nights, Tom, of watching the president's press conference. And uh, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I just dumbfounded. I've gotten clips before. I know I've never watched the whole thing. And you know, what's frustrating is, is he always has done is give mixed messages on everything. And now he's trying to blame the World Health Organization for his failures. I, I just think, you know, we need to just make sure we're continuing to talk about this. I really do think even his supporters, from what I saw from some polling, understand how badly he screwed this up. But we can't make the mistake of reopening too quickly either. And I think he could be trying to take us down that path. So we have to be very vigilant. Well, in this morning's Washington Post, sorry, I don't recall who it was who wrote it, but I'm looking here through my stack. But there was a brilliant article suggesting that why he read those, the names of the 200 fellow billionaires and CEOs and whatnot, was because he intends to blame them. He's basically saying they're the ones who are going to tell him when to do it. Well, also, you know, what really made me nervous is suddenly he's now saying testing is all up to governors. But every governor is waiting for testing supplies and reagents from the federal government. And um, I know that we are not getting our supplies that we request in Wisconsin. So, again, this guy just can't take credit for uh, anything. I mean, he's just trying to blame everyone else. 
but it was painful watching that for two days. And, you know, I really hope the media, at least they're being more aggressive in their questioning, but it's time to just stop the Donald Trump show. It doesn't need to be a daily run. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm calling them rallies. It's the daily Donald Trump rally, and it's just uh, disheartening. What I've done for the last couple of days, uh, Louise and I discovered a treasure trove of great exercise videos over on YouTube, little 15-minute workouts, uh, you know, to, to get yourself in shape. And so when Trump comes on TV, we get out a couple of uh, yoga mats, lay them, lay them on the living room floor, and we do, we do our we do our exercises. And then when we're done with that, we just go to Free Speech TV and say to hell with the, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's like, uh, I do not want Trump in this house. Anyhow, let's pick up yeah. some phone calls. we got a lot of people who want to uh, check in with you. So Gabby in Flagstaff, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello. Hi, Congressman Pocan. First, I wanted to say thank you for your work on the Congressional LGBTQ Equality Caucus. Oh, thank you. Me being transgender, it's, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, oh, I have a question for you regarding unemployment. I quit my job at the end of January, kind of due to a mental illness thing. I have general anxiety disorder, and the work that I was doing was not really conducive to that. It was in the intake of a donation center for a thrift store. So it was just, it was very active, and I had to leave because there were some issues with that. So anyways, I quit my job, and I don't qualify for unemployment. And right now, it's been hard to find a job. For one, being transgender doesn't help. Being a felon doesn't help. The fact that there's, there's 6 million, 16 million people out of work. And so I'm very worried about finding a job. And I don't qualify as far. Are there any changes in the law that will allow me to qualify now? Yeah, I'm sorry. So, what, and what's so the, the question, question Gabby, sorry, Gabby, is? So the question would be, are there any changes in the new law with unemployment that would allow people that are not do not qualify for unemployment because they quit their job to have access to it. Maybe there's a provision if they can't find a job within three or four months or something. Because of the state of the economy, uh, even those who quit that job, they quit their job before this all happened and they haven't been able to find a job since then. I'm particularly hard to find a job because I'm a felon and I'm transgender. And right now it's just like the prospects are even bleaker and bleaker every day. <laughs> and I can't get that unemployment. Right. Yeah. Got you know, it, yeah. you're the first let's, person, let's Gabby, who's brought this kind of unique situation up, and I just don't have an answer for you. We've had a lot of different people who've been, you know, somehow fallen through the cracks as we've done this, as we would expect from something being put together as quickly as the CARES Act was. And those are some of the populations we're trying to address in the next bill. But thank you for raising this, and let me try to find out, because I just do not know that answer offhand. Okay. Aaron in Marana. Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, I got on really quick. Anyway, my question, I've been listening to you forever, just to let you know. Anyway, my question is, I have Tom O'Halloran as my representative, and he's pretty much a blue dog. He takes money from uh, the prison, uh, private prisons and fossil fuels. I'm working for a woman that's primarying him. She's much more progressive. And I just need your opinion. Do you guys think that's a good idea to take a risk Number one, you know, if we primary him and we win in Arizona, it might be looked upon as she being too liberal and we might end up losing the seat. That's my biggest concern. Yeah, Aaron, you know, in general, through the Progressive Caucus, I think is probably the best way I could try to describe this is we haven't gotten involved in any primaries. In fact, uh, recently when 
Dan Lipinski was running, who probably, I think you could pretty much argue was the most conservative member of the Democratic caucus. We backed Marie Newman as individuals, and we did it because we thought she would be a, a better vote than Dan Lipinski. So as a caucus, we just have not gone against people that we serve with. It's just not a very smart effort generally to do as an entire caucus, but as individuals, some of us did back Murray Newman um, because he was anti-LGBT, anti-equality, and some really core Democratic issues. I think the question that you always have to look at is what are the votes that you're disagreeing with someone on? And, you know, have you tried to impact change with that member of Congress? And, you know, um, at the end of the day, primaries are to pick the person that you want to be the best person to represent your party. And, you know, after the primary is over, just make sure we don't do anything to hurt our efforts that somehow uh, a Republican could get elected because that could risk the ability for Nancy Pelosi to be the speaker. I think it's a lot easier to do in a solid blue area like, you know, AOC did with what's his name. Exactly. With Joe Crowley and, we, and what we just saw with Marie Newman was, I think, a really classic example. Yeah, because Lipinski was really a talk and he lost the primary, by the way, <laughs> which is exactly. great. Yeah. yeah. Congressman Mark Pocan is taking your calls for the hour. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the state of Wisconsin and the U.S. House of Representatives. Pocan.house.gov is his website. You can tweet him at rep. Mark Pocan, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan. So it turns out back in November, the spy agencies in the United States were notifying the Trump administration that something's going on in China. Looks like another SARS outbreak. We, maybe we should get ready for this. It was ignored. I've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com that basically goes through the whole timeline, all the way from, well, actually going back to 2018 when Trump disbanded three different anti-pandemic agencies in the Department of Homeland Security, the National Security Council, and the executive branch. Just closed them down, fired the people. That was the end of that. How he ignored the intelligence in November, he ignored the intelligence in December, he ignored the epidemic now coming into the United States in January, he ignored it in February, just going the blow-by-blow timeline. And I think it's really worth having it all in one place, you know, a good recap, a good summary of this that you can refer to and you can share with your friends. It's all over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out. Deborah in New Haven, Connecticut. You're on the Earth Congress in Pocan. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. One of the questions I have kind of goes to the previous caller. She was talking about being a felon. But I was just, I was talking about, and it came about because of a, a family situation, about all the restrictions that are placed on people that get this $1,200. It just seems like there are so many restrictions. It's going to disqualify a large segment of the population. So one of the things that really kind of bugged me was 17-year-olds. If you're 16 and under, you know, in family, you get the 500. But if you're 17 and older, you don't, you know, qualify when 17-year-olds are clearly still dependent. So what was your thinking? I wanted to know one question. What, what was the Congress thinking when they enacted these restrictions on who was going to get this money? And are prisoners able to get the money, even if you're not a felon? Are prisoners going to receive these checks. I'm not, that, I'm not saying whether or not they should or not. I'm just asking, 
you know, that's part of some of these restrictions. It just seemed to be, I just want to know what, what you guys were really thinking when you put these restrictions in place, because it seems as if you really wanted to put a cap on how much money you really wanted to throw out there. Thank you so much. Yeah, Jeff. Sure, Debbie. Thank you. I don't think it was so much that. I think it was honestly, it was drafted relatively quickly with different priorities coming from Senate Republicans and House Democrats. We, many of us, wanted to uh, do direct payments to folks instead of some other systems. This one-time check, personally, I think is a rather dumb approach. I think there were better ways to get money into people's hands that we would have had it. And I think out of doing this, they had some gaps. And that's what, again, we're looking at within the next package is where a gap got created that wasn't intended. So it wasn't like we think 16-year-olds are great, but 17-year-olds aren't. I think it was more just in the problems of trying to draft something as comprehensively as this was in as little time as they had and put $2 trillion out to make sure that we address things as quickly as possible. So I don't think it had so much to do with limiting how much was the overall money. I think it was more just in the exceptions of how they were trying to put it out. The main concern was don't give it to people who already are wealthy. And I know that was the biggest concern that we had. Congressman, we just have 40 seconds. How do you expect this is going to be reformulated? I mean, obviously, this 1200 bucks is not going to be enough and it's not going to last long enough. Is it going to be Maxine Waters, so $2,000 a month thing? Well, you know, I mean, the, the <laughs> biggest concern I have is on run unemployment, right? If someone lost a job through no fault of their own or no fault of the small business owners, those are the people that we're trying to make whole. That's why there's the $600 a week boost through unemployment, which should put everyone at about the median income in the United States. That's, for many of us, the priority, but then make sure that everyone's eligible for that who should be eligible. But if you or I are doing all right right now and we're still making a salary and we're making above a certain amount of money, I I still don't think necessarily that the check was a good idea for people who are doing well. We're trying to make whole the people who need it the most. And one of those possibilities was to put out almost like a universal basic income idea. A universal basic income. Yeah. Italy's talking about that right now. That's brilliant. Congressman Mark Pocan with us. He'll be back with more of his answers to your questions in just a moment. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Bob Nay's book, Sideswiped, Lessons Learned Courtesy of the Hitmen of Capitol Hill. Bob was the only member of Congress. He was a Republican congressman. In fact, he was the guy who invented the phrase freedom fries. That far right, yes. He's the only member of Congress who spoke Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran. The Iranian government during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, sent a letter to or delivered a letter to Bob in Farsi because he spoke Farsi, saying that they were willing to recognize Israel and stop their nuclear program in exchange for recognition by the United States. Bob delivered that to the Bush White House. And within a short time, Bob found himself in a federal prison. And that letter never surfaced, and that rapprochement never happened. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's too long to read as an excerpt, but it's in the book. It's the end of Bob's political career. Now he's working for Talk Media News. But this is from Chapter 17 of his book. It's titled Political Strongarming. I had a major blowout over the Head Start program with Andy Card, President George W. Bush's chief of staff. The first of the legislation debates centered on Head Start. John Boehner was doing his best to acquire votes to hurt the program. I had supported Head Start for years as an Ohio State Senator and again as a U.S. Congressman. 
When George Bush became president, however, every issue, including this one, was treated as though, if lost, it would be the end of the world, as if winning were vital to save the presidency. Speaker Hastert became a lapdog for President Bush. Didn't matter whether it was overspending, crushing unions, or ripping the legs out from under head start. Hastert acted like the president ran the House instead of the other way around. I found myself under intense pressure to vote against Head Start. I was bombarded by all sides, Tom DeLay, Hastert's staff, and the chairman of the Education Committee, which at the time was John Boehner. I found it amazing that a sitting president would make a do-or-die issue over taking money away from poor children who needed to jump on school, a Head Start. Anyone in the field of education knew that Head Start had a rocky beginning, but it had proven to be statistically and socially a very fine program, and I had always supported it. I had a private hideaway, an office the Speaker gives to leaders and uh, long-term older members of Congress that very few people knew about. Even Brian Walsh, my press secretary, was unaware. On this particular evening, I was in that Capitol hideaway, one floor directly below the chamber. I was sick and tired of being lobbied and bullied on this vote. I had to escape the arm twisting. I used to say it was so bad that you could hear the bones snap on the floor of the House. My private phone in the hideaway was ringing, so I knew that only Ted Van Der Mead of the Speaker's office could have given it out. Chris Kruger, my executive assistant, answered it and signaled me that it was Andy Card, the White House Chief of Staff. Andy said, we need this head start vote. It's critical to the Bush administration's future. I was stunned at this. The entire future of the Bush administration was predicated on beating up on little unfortunate kids by taking away their head start funding. I thought this was idiocy and stupid politics. I said, I have always supported Head Start over my entire career. I don't like this vote, and I just cannot help you. Card blew up at me and responded with, let me make this clear. Boehner said you were a vote for us, and we are holding you to that. I don't know where Boehner got that from, I said. I can rethink this, but I, but I don't like it, and I'm sure I will not change my mind. Andy then said, you are an effing liar. Only spells out the word. And I said, F you, Andy, and your idiotic administration. And I hung up on him. I went to the floor of the house where Boehner confronted me. I told him, Andy is disrespectful, way out in left field on this. He can kiss my ass and, and F him, period. Boehner continued to strong army. They were one vote short. It boiled down to the fact that this vote was so hideous, so wrong, that they simply could not get the votes. One of my best friends in Congress, Steve LaTourette, took a bullet for me on this to move the bill along. He told him to back off on me and he would help through the process in the House, but not necessarily if or when the vote came back from the Senate. Second time Andy Card ran afoul of Congress, he had to confront Congressman Steve LaTourette. Steve was one of the finest members of Congress, very brave in his positions, an independent thinker, good at politics, and no wallflower. He's conservative on some issues, but he cares deep down about working people and how they survive in America. At this writing, Steve has left Congress, frustrated with the lack of acceptance of moderates within the Republican Party. Andy Card decided that he wanted to remove Davis-Bacon, a federal law that requires payment of prevailing wages to workers on public work projects, from the Transportation Appropriation Bill. Don Young was a strong transportation chairman and let La Tourette take the lead on the issue. I dug into Andy's history and found some interesting things. He'd been a Massachusetts state rep. He'd worked for President Bush's father, Bush 41. When Bush 41 lost to Clinton, Andy felt that the transportation bill had done the president no good, and he disliked labor unions, and he disliked unions in general. We all kept up a tough front. Transportation unions lobbyists for the building trades, like Tim James, was very effective and helped the labor Republicans push back. Bush 43, though, kept putting up roadblocks at every step. He simply did not want a transportation bill that might support the unions. 
John Micah, Transportation Subcommittee Chair during a private Republican caucus meeting, made the best statement of the day. John said, hell, the president doesn't think we need a bill. As he travels in cities by car, they stop all the traffic for his motorcade. He thinks there are no traffic problems. The streets are deserted. We all howled. So anyhow, there's just all these amazing inside stories about how Congress actually works. It's pretty grim. The book Sideswiped by Bob Ney. Congressman Mark Pocan on the line, taking your calls. Joe in Ontario, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, uh, it was my understanding that Medicare is required to pay for telephone appointments during the COVID-19 situation. And my last appointment, my EOB says Medicare is not gonna pay for the claim because it was a telephone conference. And I'm wondering, was that included in there? And if it is, then shouldn't Medicare be required to go back and review all the denied claims instead of having us all call or write in to uh, file an appeal? Hmm. Yeah, Joe, so I don't know offhand. We did have a number of approaches on telemedicine, specifically with Medicare and telemedicine. I'd have to look. It's a 1,200-page bill. I don't have it in front of me. I'm operating from home to tell you how that would be. But I do think it's worth putting a call in to check on that because, I don't know every in and out of what Medicare covers in relation to the provision around the telemedicine provisions in the CARES Act. So I apologize. I don't have that answer without having the bill and the right section of the bill in front of me. Nancy in Woodland, California, listening to uh, iHeartRadio out of San Francisco, AM 910. Nancy, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Yeah, Representative Pocan, um, I know that there's a lot of surplus food and milk that's being dumped right now. And I heard that in part it's because they're only set up to ship and deliver in large industrial quantities, like to restaurants. So I'm just wondering, instead of dumping it, could something be done so that this food can be shipped to food banks and soup kitchens and that sort of thing that can handle the large quantities? Nancy, absolutely. Not only have we recommended that to the USDA, but I believe I was told this morning the USDA is going to be doing that. They're going to be buying some of the surplus and getting it to food pantries. I don't have all the particulars. We just heard that this morning. We were actually drafting legislation to do just that because we've recommended it and hadn't heard back. But it does appear the USDA is going to do that. I think they're also looking at some livestock as well. Steve in St. Louis, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you. I just have two questions. Does our president have the authority to shut banks down? And does he have the authority to tell the banks to control the amount of withdrawals? And if we were to go into a major crash, that is. Just curious. I don't know if the president themselves have that authority. I mean, he does have some power through executive orders. And certainly we know this week he thinks he has the absolute authority on everything, which is probably why people are wondering how much power he actually has. But I don't think, I mean, to go to the individual bank level, I think would be unlikely. But, you know, this president certainly tells you he has the authority to do a lot of things that he doesn't necessarily have that authority to do. So, Steve, my best guess is he can't affect an individual bank just on his own. Rob in Mesa, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. Yeah, and I think the testing and knowing who's got the virus is key to getting the economy going. My question is more on housing. And is there any legislation to help 
curve the inflation of housing right now. And basically, we have a lot of new time home buyers. And if we had something like a moratorium on corporations and foreign investment into single family homes to help keep costs down so we can get more people into housing, that would be great. Is there any ideas or thoughts on trying to curb you know, an inflated price on housing? Yeah, Rob. So I think most of the efforts around housing of trying to make sure that people aren't being evicted right now, uh, if they can't afford their rent or mortgage, and trying to make sure that we're trying to mitigate the current situation. Of course, that current situation, there are other effects that could happen, and that will be under the purview of Maxine Waters through financial services. And I know she's been working on a number of housing initiatives for the next package, and but I have not heard specifically what she's proposed yet. She hasn't given them to the caucus as a whole. But to your first point, Rob, I, I really do want to emphasize, you are um, 100% right that we are still significantly behind in testing. This week, I think one of the more one of the bigger lies the president said was that when he was asked about testing, he said, oh, yeah, it's up to the governors. It's not, because every governor is asking the federal government for tests kits and for reagents to be able to process the tests. And we are woefully behind. And Dr. Gottlieb, I was on a call with this week, and he said it was getting from zero to a million a week was pretty easy because you had existing lab capacity. The tough part is going to be a million to two million because you're going to have to start building labs and things to be able to do the tests. And this president has not shown that bigger, broader picture. And you're 100% right. If we can't be testing, it's going to be really hard to reopen the economy. Yeah, and when you look at what Germany has done, it's just spectacular. A, a friend of mine is in a hospital in Germany right now. As soon as you go to the hospital, they test to see if you've ever had the disease. They've got the antibody test there. They're using them all over the place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coming up on this week's Science Revolution is Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch. Could another zoonotic pandemic be coming? Thomas Lindsay with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights is here on the rights of nature and how they may have kept Pennsylvania from industry harm. And Friends of the Earth, Lucas Ross is dropping by on the big oil bailout and how fracking could be next. Plus, Arthur West with the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics is suing Fox so-called news for endangering Americans by calling the coronavirus a hoax. Can he win? The Science Revolution is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Pete in Newport, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Hi, Congressman. I'm a self-employed business owner, and I'm wondering, since we've automatically been put to the back of the line for unemployment and self-employed people, and since the SBA is not following the law about the emergency economic injury disaster loans and grants, what are you doing and to hold the SBA accountable and to help tiny businesses, meaning the businesses that are under a million dollars in revenue, under 10 employees, that so far have seen almost nothing? Yeah, Pete, great point. And there are some solutions I'm going to mention in a second, but not enough. And I think this is one of the weaker areas of what came out of the CARES Act is affecting small businesses. And that's quite honestly the same kind of small business that I own, Pete, and I've had for 30 years. I've had a small union shop, but a very small specialty printing business. And I know what you're talking about. The PPP loans can help you pay your payroll for eight weeks. And then in doing so, You also will get forgiven your rent and your utilities, and that will help some of the smaller businesses. If you don't have employees, though, then there's the other loan program with the $10,000 grant. Part of the problem is if you get the $10,000 grant and you get a PPP loan, that comes off the amount forgiven. And I talked to Nancy Pelosi about this on Friday afternoon, and that was not intended out of the law. So part of it is making sure that what we intended in law is what's happening. It's not so much going after the SBA is having them understand what we intended. And I think some of that language will have to be addressed in the CARES 2 package. Secondly, I think the PPP loan program, because it will work for someone even with one or two employees, it will, I think there's a good chance it'll be extended in some form because right now Pramila Jaipal and I and others have introduced a bill to try to do what they're doing in England and Denmark, which is just directly paying some salary for employees. In a way, that's what the Paycheck Protection Loan is supposed to do, but in a bit more maybe convoluted way. But in my same conversations that we've had, and many members of Congress have brought up micro-businesses, what you're talking about and what I've talked about, is that there are more that we need to do and we may have to extend that program beyond the current eight weeks. 
Also, we're trying to get some changes in the work share program for unemployment insurance that can absolutely help a small business, even with just an employee or two, or actually two, I think generally you have to have for work share. So there are some programs in place, and I think the best I can recommend is, you know, look, there's some articles explaining this, what programs are out there, because some are state-based like UI, even though the federal government is paying for the work share program within it. But there are some programs out there. I think you may just have to, unfortunately, do a little digging to get there. Amir in Minneapolis, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. How you doing, Congressman? And thanks, Tom. Congressman, Tom brought up earlier this provision the Republicans put in a bill to give Trump and his buddies tax breaks and all. Look, I make over 150, so I didn't qualify for this 1,200. So I wasn't really mad about that. But now Tom made me mad when he said this. So what? Is there something that can be done on this next bill to eliminate what they did in this last bill? I'm sorry, specifically, what do you mean to, that they eliminate? It's a, it's a provision in the bill that has just been widely publicized yesterday. It was the first time I saw several stories about it. And it is, they wrote a provision in there that says if you have huge stock market gains and real estate losses, you may offset your real estate losses with your stock market gain, or you may offset the taxes on your stock market gains with your real estate losses. And uh, this principally benefits landlords and people like Donald people, Trump. Yeah. yeah, and you know, that's part of what we are finding out. There's going to be some things that people got left out and other people that, like this, seems to be a special provision for folks above and beyond. Whether or not the Republicans will agree to repeal something like that, I doubt it, to be perfectly honest, Amir, but I do think that the check idea, and I appreciate that your attitude towards it, because I think, you know, that's the attitude of many. If you are actually doing well right now, we need to help the people who aren't doing well. And that check didn't really address the needs that are actually out there. And I think there are far better solutions that we're trying to work towards. Tim in Shelby Township, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. First of all, for our protesters in Lansing, they're complaining that they can't get their tomato plants. It's snowing outside of Detroit right now, and their tomato plants would die. Now, as far as the subject of the campaign coming this November, I don't think any of us, I've been canvassing for 16 years for Democrats and Democratic causes, and I don't think I'll be doing any canvassing knocking door to door this fall. Could we the Democratic groups throughout the country, through the Democratic caucus, get copies of Greg Palace's cross-check list so we can call all the people that have been put off of the voting rolls and make sure that they're aware of it. Because Tom has mentioned many times that 83 or 84,000 votes in Detroit were not counted because they were given provisional ballots. Is this something that we could push? Yeah, so I think what I would recommend is really working with the local campaign or your state Democratic Party. Like, for example, in Wisconsin, you know, Ben Wickler is our chair and just did a fantastic job given the horrendous conditions we had around this election in April. But those are the folks that are going to be uh, working to make sure that we have lists that we can do remotely from home. So you're not knocking on doors, but you're making phone calls, you're doing texts, et cetera, with people and having the appropriate voting lists 
because again, I think we were the poster child in Wisconsin for what happened you know last week for a horrendous conditions around election, why we should have a vote-by-mail program. And I just talked to Earl Blumenauer this morning. They have it in Oregon. It works extremely well, and he sent me some documentation. That really is, I think, the best effort we could do. We had something like 70 or 80 percent. I'm trying to get the final number of people in Wisconsin voted via absentee. That wasn't just liberals, right? That was everybody, including conservatives. People prefer not to get sick when they go vote. And that means we need to crank up things like vote by mail. We will have then lists that you can still do outreach and use technology to campaign that won't be your traditional door knocking. So absolutely look for that. I guarantee it'll happen in Michigan. You're a swing state, just like my state. And uh, we appreciate any efforts towards that. By the way, the conservatives on the Supreme Court in Wisconsin who said that you must go to the polls if you haven't gotten your mail-in ballot yet, they all voted by mail-in ballot. Is that widely known in Wisconsin? Yeah, well, the Supreme Court, yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think, you know, also what we learned from getting our election results on Monday night was that our uh, the liberal who ran for Supreme Court beat a conservative incumbent by over 100,000 votes. And so their efforts to try to make the election a debacle, it was a debacle, but it certainly blew up in their faces. And I think people are way smarter than Republican politicians. I think Democrats have reached the point where they'll walk over ground glass to get these Republicans out of office. I really do. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls with Congressman Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Representative Pocan's website is pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, This is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed 
in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern internet, for example, the main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Katherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the mass majority more than 2 to 1 in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up, and other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. 
Alex in Houston, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, Congressman. Uh, please, is it legal for the president to put his name on the stimulus check? Um, you know, I think the president's going to be doing this. We assumed, knowing his ego, despite the smallness of many things about him, that he would want to have his signature on the checks. Fortunately, for most people, it's a direct deposit, and they won't be getting a check. But in doing so, he's delaying getting that money out, which, again, just shows the narcissism of the president rather than the practicality of giving people $1,200. Brendan Boyle from Pennsylvania introduced a bill that I'm a co-sponsor of to not allow him to do it. But given that we don't really have that ability the way you know we're not in Washington right now, I think it's going to happen. The good news, though, Alex, is I don't think all that many people are beginning, actually going to getting a check. The vast majority of people are getting it through a direct deposit, and that means his ego will just have to endure that. Marilyn in Sun City, West Arizona. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman, and thank you for taking my call. I live in a red state. I feel like a lone blue person, but I have a question about $1,200 that everybody is getting. I live in a 33,000 people retirement community, and my question is most of the neighbors that I know and my mom and people living around me, including myself, Nothing has really, we haven't lost jobs because it's a retirement community. And a lot of my even conservative neighbors have said that nothing has really changed for us. That we, you know, we still get our Social Security or our pensions or still have our bank accounts. And so I'm wondering, I'm not sure. I went on Facebook this morning and a lot of my friends are donating the $1,200 to food banks and other places, which is fine, and we're thankful for that. But I'm wondering, what was the thought behind that? Was it just too quick to maybe vet amongst seniors who really might need it? Well, I think, I mean, I can tell you that was an idea that came from the Senate Republicans, really from the president, because he's the one who talked about doing a check. We talked about doing things that were, I think, far more strategic, which was putting the surge on unemployment for people, again, who lost their job, no fault of their own, and for the small businesses who had to lay people off at no fault of their own, but because of the coronavirus. We had talks about doing some universal basic income across the board, again, but needs-based, which is, I think, the operative part, uh, not necessarily uh, at the level that you had at the $1,200 check. But that was a provision that the president wanted, because I think all along he wanted to try to send out checks with his signature. And unfortunately for him, again, many of those are going to be direct deposited, and he won't have the same, I think, impact he wanted. So, you know, there's compromises that were made in that bill. This was never a priority coming from House Democrats, and I can't tell you what their strategic vision was of doing it. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. We'll be back in just a moment with more of your calls for him. You can reach him at, uh, you can tweet him at Rep Mark Pocan, as in Representative Mark Pocan, M-A-R-K-P-O-C-A-N. And you can find his website at Pocan, P-O-C-A-N dot house dot gov. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Pocan. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. We have a special video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how a letter that the IRS sent out to 3.9 million Americans saved 700 lives. And you're like, wait a minute, the IRS saved 700 lives? How did that happen? Well, it had to do with Obamacare, and it's a fascinating story. And it turns out that this analysis of this IRS mailing was actually the first time that the federal government has done a study that actually proved that people having access to health care produces fewer deaths. For every 1,648 people who got the letter, there was one fewer premature death. I'll explain the whole thing in the video. As I said, it's available over at TomHartman.com, and it is really worth checking out for a national health care system. Welcome back to the Mark Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour and from Mark to Mark, Mark in Ventura, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. Hello, Congressman. I, I, my question is about landlords. There is no financial relief in any of the bills passed to help them. And all they are supposed to be able to do is take out loans, which puts them into further debt. And they're being very aggressive with tenants who can't pay their rent as a consequence. Is there anything that could be done about that for them to give them some financial assistance that they necessarily wouldn't have to pay back? Yeah, Mark, you bring up a good point. I don't have an answer offhand, and this might be, again, one of those areas that as we move forward trying to make sure that 
people weren't evicted because they don't have a job, because I think clearly, you know, people don't want to see people evicted because of the coronavirus. But you're right, if, if people still have to make that bank payment and they're counting on that rent coming in and they don't have that, we need to make sure we're providing help. I think they can get some of the loans from the government. They are at, the one loan is at 4% over a pretty long extended period. So once they're paid, they can, I think, prepay that without penalty. I believe that's how the SBA functions on those loans. But they may have a harder time taking advantage of the PPP unless they have staff on salary, and that could provide some minor assistance. But you bring up a good point, and Mark, and I'm going to look into this because we should make sure as much as we absolutely don't want people to be evicted, we also don't want to punish anyone because we're not evicting people who might have expenses that may not be considered. John in Concord, Massachusetts, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. My question is, I noticed Mr. Trump basically getting rid of the inspector generals. I was wondering what Congress is doing about that to make sure that there is oversight and keeping his family out of it, if possible. Thank you. I'll take my answer off air. I'm sorry, it broke up a little on my side on that. Could you repeat the question, Tom? I- he said that Trump is firing inspector generals, and he was wondering what Congress is going to do to provide oversight if Trump either doesn't replace them or replaces them with toadies, and if there's any yeah. oversight into the Trump family. Yeah, I think he's getting rid of individuals who are the heads of it, but they're still inspector general staff in all these areas. So I still think there's the oversight functions. But absolutely, this is something that Congress would want to make sure because this is our way of having any accountability for what's happening. But I don't right now. I have not heard on a single call that we think there's any practical problems with inspector general's offices and the staff currently from operating. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good morning, Tommy. Congressman Pocan, thanks for taking my call. Congressman, quickly before my question, let me just salute the voters in your state who risked their lives to uphold democracy last week. It, of course, shouldn't have to be like that. So I offer a slogan, nobody dies with vote by mail. But my question today pertains to one of the many tragedies of the 40 years of Reaganism and neoliberalism, and that's the explosion of homelessness across America. Congressman, with no access to running water or hand washing, each and every homeless camp is a potential tinderbox for the community spread of this virus. We could put a lot of people to work building housing right now. Is there anything on the table to house the houseless on a grand scale? So, Jeff, right now there have been a number of efforts trying to help addressing homeless in local communities. I know in my community they've got hotel rooms opening up that they're putting people who would otherwise be homeless in to make sure that we're addressing this. We don't want people, like we've seen in some situations where they're on top of each other, to get this. And I know that Maxine Waters had a portion of that in the last bill, and I believe there's going to be more proposed for the next CARES Act. So it's not a population that at all has been forgotten. In fact, uh, there are a number of initiatives around it. I think what you're seeing, though, in some areas where they did those rather odd laying out how far apart people were sleeping on parking lots, as opposed to more humane efforts that we're seeing in places like Wisconsin, where uh, we're having hotel rooms open up since hotels have no business right now. This is ability to help them and help house the people who otherwise uh, could be really vulnerable. John in Evanston, Illinois, you're on the air of the Congress in Pocan. Hi, Congressman. Listen, my thing is about voting. I'm hoping that you guys can put a rider on the latest stimulus regarding vote by mail, early voting, same-day voting, and 
virus testing at every polling place. Hmm. Yeah, that one's the last one's a new one. The rest are there. Also, John, no excuse absentee requested voting is another thing that has been talked about. I mean, our preferred way would be to do a vote by mail program because we don't know what November is going to look like next. You don't want to happen what happened in Wisconsin with a final scramble. But if you had a ballot sent to everyone, like when you normally send absentee ballots about six weeks out, if you didn't get a ballot four weeks out, you can still get one. And it was used, as I mentioned, in Wisconsin by, I have to get the exact number, but it's either 71 or like 80 percent. The vast, vast, vast majority of people chose to not have to go out on Election Day and sent in their absentee ballots. So vote by mail is by far the smartest way for us to proceed. And I think Donald Trump just thinks it's if more people vote, he's in trouble. But I'll tell you, uh, that's what they thought they could do in Wisconsin, and we proved him wrong. So we're going to keep fighting for what's right because we want to make sure everyone's safe. You shouldn't have to risk your health in order to be able to vote. What should we be looking at in the week coming up? You know, I think, again, just, you know, watching what the president's doing, I'm very concerned about if he tries to open us up too quick or too haphazardly. The good news is governors are regionally talking to each other and dealing with things that, quite honestly, the president should be. So thank God we have adults, both in the Republican and Democratic Party, who aren't parts of the Trump family. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for being with us today. It's always great having you on, and, and we really appreciate you doing this every week. Oh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, great talking to you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's Tom Hartman Book Club is by Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey K. Take hold of our history. Make America radical again. This is from the introduction. On December 1st, 1862, in the midst of the Civil War, just weeks before he was to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln delivered his annual message to Congress. Lincoln firmly believed that the United States had an historic responsibility to demonstrate to the world that people can govern themselves, make equal rights not just a self-evident truth but a manifest one, and create a political and economic order in which working people, both white and black, are not compelled to bow to anyone, neither aristocrats nor capitalists. Empowered by tens of thousands of black slaves who were already liberating themselves from bondage by escaping to the Union lines, and increasingly confident that the majority of his fellow Americans would recognize the truth of what he was saying, Lincoln closed his address by calling on them to see that the time had come to remember who they were and what that demanded. He told them that to save the nation and all that it represented, they must live up to the nation's declared revolutionary purpose and promise an act to radically enhance American freedom by bringing an end to slavery. This is a quote from Lincoln's address. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We even we here hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. 
End of quote from Lincoln. Back to Harvey. We too cannot escape history. Our own struggle to save the nation and the promise it proclaims has begun. Finally, after more than 40 years of fear-driven class war and culture war campaigns against the democratic achievements of generations, the hard-won rights of workers, women and people of color, and the very memory of how they were secured, and now both in the wake of the election debacle of 2016, which gave the presidency to the corrupt, mendacious, racist, sexist, and treacherous demagogue Donald Trump, and continued control of Congress to the formerly conservative but increasingly reactionary Republican Party, and in the face of intensified class and culture war campaigns, we the people have come not only to recognize that American democratic life is in jeopardy, but also to mobilize in hopes of saving it. Millions of us have rallied to the resistance and expressed our democratic fears and desires in action in the historic Women's March and March of For Our Lives of Young People, the protests, demonstrations, and legal actions to defend the lives and rights of immigrants and refugees, the Me Too movement to combat sexual assault and harassment, the massive teacher strikes for higher pay and better funding of public schools in states red and blue, and the enthusiastic canvassing and campaigning for a blue wave to win back Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. But resistance is not enough. The time has come for us to remember who we are and what that demands. The time has come for us to embrace our radical history. The history of how a generation of Americans, high and low, and in all their diversity, not only turned their colonial rebellion into a war for independence, but also imbued American life, whether they all intended it or not, with radical imperative and impulse by declaring a revolutionary promise of freedom, equality, and democracy for all. The history of how generations of radicals and reformers served as the prophetic memory of that promise and how generations of ordinary men and women, native-born and immigrant, struggled to make real the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to expand not only the we in we the people, but also the powers of the people. And most especially in view of the crises we ourselves face, the history of how our greatest generations confronted and prevailed over the forces that threatened to destroy the nation and bury its revolutionary promise in the 1770s, 1860s, and 1930s and 1940s, not to mention the 1960s, by acting to make the United States, both inspired by Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and pushing them to go farther than they might otherwise have gone, radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. The time has come to take hold of that history and make America radical again. I've titled this collection of my speeches and essays, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, for reasons that will become obvious, and yet I cannot help but confess that if I had had to title it otherwise, I would have been sorely tempted to use, with full attribution, the title Max Lerner gave to his 1938 work, It Is Later Than You Think, The Need for a Militant Democracy. While it may not seem so, the crisis we face is no less demanding of action, urgent action, than that which confronted his generation. The book Take Hold of Our History by Harvey J.K.
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 